Welcome to our classroom. In this space, we talk about education, which is inclusive of, but not limited to, what happens in schools. Education is taking place whenever and wherever we are willing to learn. I am your host, Roberto Germán, and today's episode will feature Jordan Botello. Jordan is a PhD student and graduate teaching fellow in the Department of Philosophy at the Graduate Center, CUNY Cooney in New York City. He currently teaches at Brooklyn College. His interests are metaphysics, what's that? <laughs> Philosophy of language, deep thinker, Critical philosophy of race. Oh, some people just got triggered. Philosophy of law and philosophy of religion. In particular, he's been doing research on semantics, pragmatics of racial slurs and the implications this has for appropriation and free speech laws. He also does research on theorizing about racial Justice. Oh, this is going to be a good one. Before that, he was a JT and Margaret talking to fellow and graduate instructor in the Department of Philosophy at Texas Tech University, where he earned his master's in philosophy. Jordan also founded the Minorities in Philosophy chapter at Texas Tech. Jordan is also a Texas, Texas Social Studies 7-12 certified educator and taught in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. Excited to have Jordan with us today. Yes, indeed, yes, indeed. Y'all are in for a treat. Uh, Y'all are in for a treat because has a lot to offer and we're going to chop it up. Yep, there he is, Jordan. Thank you, thank you for being here. Hey, what's happening? What's happening? Hey man, it's a pleasure to it's have good to you. See you, bro. It's good to pleasure see you. To have you. I, you know, I see you got the Scully on, man. I, yeah, you got the Scully to, on. You must, you're in New York. You must be cold. Gotta have the Scully on. I, bro, I've been. I lived in the South for too long, man. I, I need to rebuild my tolerance up. You got the hoodie too. Yeah, actually, I wanted to shout out. Uh, I'm wearing Pray and Plot. This is a local, uh, black-owned uh, uh, label in uh, San Antonio, Texas, man. Yeah, I love That's what he's doing out there. What's the name of that company? Pray and Plot. I can send you Pray a link later. Plot. That's what's up. We appreciate they pray and that. Stay yes, plot. We, we want to support local businesses, black and brown businesses. We we want to make sure that we're pouring into them. So thank you for shouting Pray and Plot out. We see you hey, Pray and Plot. Keep doing your thing. And Jordan... Glad to have you here. We're going to go ahead and get started with the question I always like to start this show off with, given that what we talk about here is, is education, educational journey. So yeah, yeah, yeah. where are you from? And tell us about your educational journey. So this one's tough, man. Uh, as far as where I'm from, it's a complicated question because I was an Air Force brat. So my pops was in the Air Force for a 
the, a majority of my childhood. So I moved everywhere. I lived in the DMV. I lived in the deep south in Alabama, Montgomery, Alabama. I lived in Alaska. And then we settled in Texas. So I claimed Texas, even though I wasn't born there, wasn't really raised there until high school. I, I did high school in Texas. And then obviously that's where I began my, my higher educational journey. Okay. Um, my educational journey, man, uh, I went to a very small uh, private Christian school outside of Dallas in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. And I uh, am actually trained as a history teacher. But I realized then that I wanted to pursue academia. Um, so I decided to go to grad school, went to grad school at Texas Tech, got my master's in philosophy. And now I'm working on my PhD. I'm here in New York. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about it in a little bit, but it's been, it's unique, man. Doing a PhD in a pandemic is, is very different. No one's ever done it before. So we're all trying to figure it out. You're a trendsetter. <laughs> That's awesome, man. So you're doing your PhD and you're also teaching at Brooklyn College. Is that correct? correct? What's it been like for you to teach at Brooklyn College? Yeah, so, so that is what I was alluding to a little bit, you know, since we're in a pandemic. I started my PhD living in Texas. I'm finally up here in New York, but because of the way that COVID protocols have gone, because they're still making a mass effort to, to uh, get people vaccinated, my semester teaching at Brooklyn College has been virtual. And so I know a lot of the educators out there who, who watch now or who watch this video in the future can attest to what I'm talking about, man. It's the struggle is real when you're talking about teaching into a Zoom classroom. And one of the really difficult parts is because I'm teaching adults, right? I'm at Brooklyn College. This isn't elementary. There aren't rules mandated in every I can't force people to turn their cameras on. So mm. trying to get creative about how I can make it work when sometimes it feel like you're teaching into the void, right? Because mm. you teach into a bunch of blank screens. Um, and so, but we've been able to make it work, you know, um, teaching has actually been probably the highlight of my career here, at, uh, my PhD so far, which I didn't think would be the case, right? Um, wow. But it's actually been what sustained me and made me excited about philosophy, right? Go, when I'm planning lessons, when I'm talking about the subject matter and teaching, and then you have students who are like, all right, I'm checked into the conversation now. I'm turning my camera on now, right? So, so yeah, it's, it's been a wild ride because it's nothing like anywhere I've ever taught, right? I, I'm, a, I'm a, an educator who flourishes in person. I try to develop a rapport very early with my students. Um, I like to think I have my finger on the pulse of like what college-age students uh, enjoy and what's going on in the culture. And so I try to keep my pedagogy updated with that right, to keep them interested and hooked in in my, in my examples when, I, when we do philosophy. Uh, but when you're on Zoom, right, you don't have a lot of those intangibles, right, because you're not meeting in person multiple times a week. So, now, yeah. You, um, and a lot of people are facing that challenge. This is actually one of the first times I've heard somebody talk about it from the higher ed perspective. Oh, yeah. So that that's it's interesting to to hear your insight around that and some of the challenges which which sounds very similar to the challenges that 
many of us who are K through 12 educators have, have wrestled with. <clears throat> now, you, you recently posted about the passing of one of your former professors, Carl <coughs> Mills. Correct. What was his legacy and why should teachers be reading his work? Okay, sure. Uh, man, we could talk for hours about about why people should be reading Charles Mills, not just educators, but uh, I'll try and simmer it down. So Charles Mills uh, is, was, sorry, arguably one of the most important philosophers to ever work on race uh, in the modern period, right? So when you look at philosophy as a discipline, philosophy is overwhelmingly white. Um, mm -hmm. especially in, in the academy, right? So he used to make a joke, right? Like he saw himself as a, as a voyager going into Antarctica, right? This cold white place and uh, like one little speck of black in the middle of that whole place. And so Charles made a, he basically became famous for this book called The Racial Contract. Now, The Racial Contract his thesis in this book. It's a short book. It's really accessible because I know a lot of times you say philosophy, people get scared. They're like, yo, that's way too deep for me. The racial contract was actually written on purpose as an accessible, punchy, short thesis. So you can see it's a thin book. It's not, it's not a hefty tome. I like the books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the thesis of the book was that white supremacy, we tend to think of, of whiteness and white supremacy as a deviation from rationality, right? Like, oh, someone is racist because they're ignorant, because they're irrational, because they're not educated, because they are, are not well informed, right? All those sorts of things. His thesis was that white supremacy, if you actually go back and look at the founders, right? You look at the Enlightenment, the European Enlightenment, you look at the greatest sort of heavy hitters in the philosophical canon that have influenced all Anglo and American thought and, and all, the, all the thought of Europe, right? So we are obviously direct descendant of that line of thought, either by colonization or by direct lineage. That white supremacy was actually just as developed an idea as the ideas of liberty, equality, right, et cetera, et cetera. So, the, he opens the book with this quote. He says, oh, let me get to it. He says, yo, I thought I had the page mark. What's going on, man? All right. White supremacy is the unnamed political system that has made the modern world what it is today. Mm -hmm. That's the opening chapter. And so what was really revolutionary about what Charles did is he got uh, people to relook at the at the philosophical canon. So when I say the philosophical canon, why is that important if you're an educator? Well, a lot of the ideas that we have about history, about science, about English, about literature, et cetera, et cetera, it all came from these thinkers, right? We think Immanuel Kant, David Hume, John Locke, et cetera, et cetera, all these great, quote unquote, great thinkers not only did they have very developed ideas about education, about literature, about science, about reason and rationality, about how we teach people, et cetera, et cetera, they also had very developed ideas about racial hierarchies mm -hmm. and about the supremacy of white people. 
And so he wanted, he basically the way that historians had treated all of these scholars in the past was, oh, well, that's just an embarrassing part of who they were. They were sort of a reflection of the time that they were in, right? And so, yeah, they had some racist views, but we can sort of ignore them and just sort of take the meat and leave the bones, mm. right? Leave the racist bones. And he charged basically that, no, white supremacy was actually a well-developed idea. And we tend to think of our political system, right? The social contract, John Locke wrote about the social contract. We all learn about it in our K through 12 history and government classes. We think of the social contract as this, as this colorblind, neutral political collaboration between all people where all people are given equality and freedom so for mutual benefit but when you look at the history of the way that this world has worked he said there's an unnamed political system and race factored into it right just in the same way that we can talk about gender as factored into the way that women have been treated throughout history his thesis was about race and, and one of the really interesting and kind of embarrassing facts is that when he wrote this book it won tons of awards but it was mostly not read in philosophy departments it was actually read outside of philosophy right so this is a standard reading if you take a sociology class if you take literature if you take history etc cetera, etc cetera. in philosophy charles really only got his flowers towards the end of his career Right. right. Because because of what he was doing. Right. He was sort of going after a lot of these people had devoted their entire lives to these thinkers. And he's causing us to go and reexamine how their thoughts on race had affected the society that we live in today. Man, that's that's amazing. And listen, listening to you talk about Charles Mills work. Really making me think, man, I wish. Um, I, I wish I would have gotten to to know him, connect with him in some way before his yeah. passing in order to connect him with Lorena Germán and- uh, Oh yeah, especially because he's Caribbean, bro. Oh, I didn't know he's Caribbean. Yeah, wow. yeah, so I was gonna mention that. I was gonna plug his other book for, for the Caribbean followers. He wrote a book called Radical Theory, Caribbean Theory. He's Jamaican. Um, okay. Yeah, man, so, so he actually brought Caribbean thought and Caribbean history to philosophy, right? Which again, is super white historically, right? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, Charles, Charles's legacy is, is gonna go on. So like when he died, I mean, he was, it was all over the New York Times. It was all, of, you know, people are finally recognizing him for his legacy, right? And for his, his critique of the system that we lived in. His and his last project, oh, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. His work reminds me of Disrupt Text, the work that Disrupt Text that Lorena, Julia, yeah. Ken, and Trisha are doing through, um, which is a hashtag movement, Disrupt Text. And, and their whole thing is about uh, examining and disrupting the classics. And, and so it, there sounds like there's a connection there between sure. what sure. Charles was doing in the area of philosophy and, and what Lorena, Kim, Trisha, and Julia are doing in the world of literature. Sure. Yeah, and uh, and I was just gonna plug his last project too, cause like his whole, I, there's consistent themes throughout his work, but he moved on from just the pure critique of the system that we were in to sort of building towards the future, right? Cause a lot of times there's a complaint 
when you do anti-racist work, it's all criticism. And then like, how do we move forward from there? Right? Mm. Like we all feel bad now. We're all like, oh shoot, racism is terrible. Right. It's everywhere. Now what? Um, so his last project, it was a book called Black Rights, White Wrongs, okay. where he basically was making the same criticism about liberalism as a political theory. And it's the idea, right, like we, it's neutral, these ideas of liberty, equality, et cetera, et cetera. John Rawls is, it was at Harvard for most of his career. He's considered the most important political philosopher of the last modern era. Um, and you see his influence everywhere. He was sort of responsible for the revival of, of liberal political theory. And when I mean, when I say liberal, I don't mean like liberal conservative, like Fox News versus CNN. I mean, liberalism as a political system, right? The, the political system that whether you're Republican or Democrat, that's all within the political system of liberalism, classical liberalism. And there's a lot of thought from anti-racist scholars that liberalism is a failed project, right? Like it's inherently racist. There's no way of re redeeming it. And so he contributed, contributes to that criticism, but he also argued in his last work that basically we need to just reframe the approach to justice in liberal theory. And then maybe there's a way of reclaiming it to make it work for racial justice. The way his critique worked is look, Normally, when we do liberal political theory, we have something called ideal theory. So you think, okay, how should the world be ideally, right? If, if there were, for example, ideally, you would want a world where race is not a factor in how people are treated. So from ideal theory, then, you would want there to be no policies, no laws, no procedures that benefit or discriminate against anyone on the basis of color. Mm. Here's the problem, though if you follow that to its conclusion, it actually cuts against the idea of things that are meant to repair the damage that has been done by racism, like affirmative action, right? So for example, uh, affirmative action, universities have these policies in place to help people from disadvantaged, marginalized backgrounds be overcome those hurdles and find a place in these institutions. That's a policy that's made on the basis of skin color, right? So Charles's big critique was that we need to have non-ideal theory. We need to have theory that starts from the world that we find ourselves in. Mm -hmm. We find ourselves in a world where 80% of the globe, right? Oh. So the, the, you the European colonial... You said we found oh, yeah. ourselves... Sorry, did I cut out? Yes. My bad. So he was saying we should have a non-ideal approach to our political philosophy, et cetera, et cetera. Like when we're theorizing about how to get to justice, we need to start from the world we find ourselves in. Our world is a world that's marred by the scar of racism, of the transatlantic slave trade. 80% of the world was affected by the colonial project, right? Europe, when they went out to do the imperial colonial thing, they touched 80% of the globe, right? It's everywhere. And so that should factor into how we make our political policy, how we factor in how justice is supposed to be achieved. Right. So it's a little, yeah, I know it's a little, it's a little high level, but, but that was basically the last project that he was working on before he passed away. And can you reiterate the, the three books that you mentioned just so our audience can catch that again? 
Yeah, hundred percent. So the first one was the racial contract. This is if you read anything by him and nothing else, read this. This is his most famous work. Okay. And then the other one I mentioned was Radical Theory, Caribbean Reality. And this is where he does work on Caribbean thought, Caribbean contributions, Caribbean thoughts about race, because it's different. It's a different conversation in the Caribbean. Right, right. And then Black Rights, White Wrongs, where he works specifically on classical liberalism as a political system. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Now, one of your interests is the critical philosophy of race. Yeah. That's been a hot topic in the public eye. Sure. Uh, what is the critical philosophy of race? And I'm asking because there are so many conversations taking place and many people involved in these conversations that don't have a clue what they're talking about. They're not sure. speaking from an informed perspective. And so what is the critical philosophy of race? Okay, so the easiest way I can put it is that critical philosophy of race, it takes race as its object of study. So philosophers look at race and they ask questions about what it is, how does it work in the world that we live in? How does race affect our ways of knowing in the world? How does race affect uh, justice, all these other things? How does race affect the way that we view standards of beauty, et cetera, et cetera? And what makes it from a critical perspective is that it is critiquing uh, the white supremacist project, right? Now, that's different than critical race theory, right? Which is what I think you're talking about, right? This new buzzword, critical race theory? Yes, yes. Which I can give a definition for that too. So first off, I wanna say this, uh, I think a lot of well-meaning educators K through 12, they think that because they're doing anti-racist education that they're doing critical race theory. Mm -hmm. And that's actually a mistake, right? Just because there's this buzzword now, critical race theory is sort of an all engulfing wor word now because of the way that conservatives have politicized the word, right? So let's make a distinction between CRT, what's happening now, versus CRT, what it really is. CRT, what's happening now, I think when conservatives talk about it now, they just mean any education that has to do with anti-racist mm -hmm. education, any kind of anti-racist education. Right, right. Drop all the words. And it's just a, it's a diversity, inclusivity, right. uh, SEL. Oh. Any of it, any of it, right? And, and some of these some of these approaches to racial justice and anti-racist work are, are opposed to each other, right? They don't even approach it like multiculturalism and colorblind theory are actually both anti-racist approaches, right? Now, a lot of people now see that colorblind approaches to racial justice were problematic, but all of it is under the umbrella of, of anything having to do with race is CRT now. But historically what CRT, critical race theory is, it came from legal scholars, right? So it came from Derek Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw, Richard Delgado, Jean Stefanczyk, uh, Mari Matsuda. These are all lawyers of color. And they all were basically using a lens of analysis to analyze the way that race was woven into law. So they were challenging the assumption that law was neutral. Mm -hmm. They were also 
uh, responding to what they saw as the failures of the civil rights movement. So the civil rights movement thought uh, sort of the popular MLK approach was, look, if we can get people to buy in, we can gradually work our way to justice, right? And we can eradicate racism. They saw, they looked at the laws that were passed after the Civil Rights Act and they said, look, these raw laws all got rid of the race, racist language, but the racism is still happening, right? People are still being affected by race, et cetera, et cetera. And so they have different theses, right? So like one of their theses of critical race theory is that racism is an intrinsic permanent part of our, law, our legal system and our social, our society, right? Now, if you work, do any kind of anti-racist work, a lot of us don't think that racism is permanent, right? Like it can be undone just like it was created. And so I say all that to say, critical race theory is a very high level, complicated, legal and sociological theory. It's a lens for viewing the law and for society and education, history, et cetera, et cetera. And it has specific views about race. And it, that's different than anti-racist theory in general, right? So then, can you give us just a brief explanation about like critical race, uh, excuse me, critical philosophy of race? Yeah, sure. So critical philosophy of race, the, the reason it's different is because there are philosophers who work on critical race theory. But critical philosophy of race in general is doing philosophy about race, but engaging critically against white supremacy. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. And so it's for not, example, for, yeah, yeah, not, yeah. Not coming from the legal perspective. Correct. So for example, here's, here's an easy distinction. So one, one area in just plain, regular philosophy of race, one question that philosophers have had is, well, what is race? Is race biological? Is it soci socially constructed? Does race exist at all? Like, is talking about race the same way talking about unicorns, right? Mm. Like, we're not... And so they all are trying to figure that question out. And that's just a question about what race is. Now, what distinguishes that from critical philosophy of race is the critical philosophy of race is meant to engage with white supremacy in a way to work towards anti-racist outcomes. So if I'm just asking, well, what is race? And then I'm like, oh, this is what I think race is. Now we've clarified it. That's just analyzing the descriptive properties of race, but I'm not engaging in saying, trying to like combat white supremacy. So now an example of critical philosophy of race, the work of Charles, for example, but also like, in the field of aesthetics. So philosophers study beauty, like what is beauty? What counts as beautiful, right? Why do people find some things beautiful and some things grotesque, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of critical philosophers of race, they actually are studying the impact of white supremacy on our standards of beauty, right? So why are European features considered more beautiful than non-European features, right? What's, what's going on there? How does that affect our standards of beauty? How does it affect the way that we appreciate and what we consider art and not art, right? So for example, back in the day, you might consider a sonnet by a European poet, a work of art, 
Right. And you might, and, and then not consider uh, an oral tradition from Africa a work mm -hmm. of art. Yeah. It's seen as like, oh, that's primitive, it's rudimentary. Well, what's affecting that? Is it actually true that it's primitive and rudimentary or is it being affected by sort of Eurocentric standards of what counts as art and what counts as beauty, right? So that would be a critical it's philosophy. Thing, but... It's to music. Like you, you examine genres of music, particularly right. in this, right? You think about like music that black folks created that was looked at as like, oh, this, you know, this doesn't Unsophisticated. Fit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Whether it whether jazz or blues or rap music, right? We could go right down the line. Salsa, reggaeton, all of it. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, so <clears throat> to to those that are watching, what's a message of encouragement that you want to offer them? Just in general? Yes. Man, I think uh Okay, so I'm sure that there are other people who are spending a lot of time isolated because they're doing Zoom school or they're back in school, but they're dealing with a lot of new COVID protocols. It's all new. No one's ever done this before. And so my message of encouragement is like to understand that you're still making a difference in these children's lives, even though sometimes it feels like I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know if I can take another day. This is driving me nuts. My mental health is all over the place. Who put me in charge of these young people's lives because I'm falling apart and I hope nobody finds out, right? Uh, so I, I would just encourage them like, no, you are actually making a difference. Your work is important, right? Even on the days when it doesn't feel like it's important to, and to keep going and to find other people who are going through the same thing and reach out to them and communicate with them and, and hold each other up in solidarity, man, because this is something that no one's ever been through before, right? Right, right. So for folks that are, that are new to you, and this is their first time listening to you, I mean, you've, you've dropped some gems on us, and um, there's, there's so much deeper that we could go into this conversation, whether we're talking about Dr. Um, or Professor Charles Mills, or talking about critical uh, philosophy of race, talking about critical race theory, talking sure. about your teaching experience at yep. Brooklyn College or your educational journey in general. Um, my sense is that people probably want to dig a little bit deeper, know a little bit more about you, uh, learn more about you. So where, where can they follow you? Where can people follow Man, so I'm not... Uh, on all the social I'm like I'm not on Twitter I'm not on TikTok any of that I'm on Instagram that's all that I got I just keep it down to one uh, because this PhD be taking up a lot of my time but uh, follow me you can follow me on Instagram it's just my name at Jordan Botheo. Uh but forewarning um, I do sometimes offer my thoughts I do try to use my platform as an educational platform but also, it's the place, man, I, lo I love comedy. I like to make people laugh. So a lot of times, I'm just being goofy on there. So just forewarning, if you're expecting like a pure educational platform, that's not it. But you are going to get the education. You're going you're gonna to hear me talk about race. You're going to hear me offer my thoughts on justice, on, on politics, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I'm also going to be goofy on there a lot of the time, just trying to make people laugh.
No, we, we welcome the goofiness. And I think people would benefit from more laughter. During sure. So much going on. And uh, I think laughter allows us to relax a little bit uh, and hopefully to, to also c connect, right? Uh, yeah. And I, you know, part of, at least part of what I've gotten to know about you is that uh, you're trying to approach people in a way where you can not just give them the gems, right? Not just educate them, but that you could connect with them. And so I appreciate the work that you're doing. Uh, I salute you for your efforts in the PhD program. I'm proud of you, hey, brother. Appreciate it, man. Um, I need all the encouragement I can get. Hey, man, you're a great example for the community. You're a great example for uh, for for our black and brown brothers, but for, for all brothers and sisters everywhere, you know, regardless of how they identify, regardless of you know your your racial. Yeah, all power to all people, man. Brown, to everybody, to everybody, and so hey, keep doing what you're doing, doing, man. Uh, love to have you back here down the line, um, especially as you get deeper into your program and closer to wrapping up. I'd uh, love to invite you back to to talk about the PhD experience and sure, yeah, public. You know what that was like and uh, why some folks should consider going that route, uh, but also to you know share about the challenges uh, about pursuing a PhD program. Absolutely, I'd love to, man. I'd love to. I'm, my hope is that I can break the stereotype of academia being these typically people of European descent who are sort of above society and they issue proclamations from the ivory tower right we're normal people we're flawed individuals and uh and there's there needs to be more black and brown and people of color in the academy you know right on break the mold bro break the mold absolutely hey y'all who are listening y'all who are following if you're not following jordan you need to make sure you do that now make sure you follow the brother jordan Bortejo. follow him now on instagram and you already know what time it is. If you're new, you're checking this out for the first time. I need y'all to rock with me at Multicultural Classroom across all platforms. Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, even got a TikTok now. I know it's crazy. I tried not to do it, but we outside. So follow us. We appreciate you. Thank you for being here this evening. Jordan, thank you for sharing your educational journey. Thank you Absolutely. for sharing insights. And we look forward to staying connected and learning more for you. Salute. All right, Doc.